This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. A quick note. There are two available versions of this podcast. One in English as a red note and Spanish as La Nota Roja. If you would prefer to listen in Spanish, you can do so by searching for La Nota Roja in the same podcast app where you downloaded or streamed this episode. The femicide in Juarez is an important story that has never been presented in this way before. To allow English-speaking audiences to hear testimony from families of the victims and Mexican investigators and journalists who studied these events, some interviews have been translated into English by Mexican voice actors. From Imperative Entertainment, this is The Red Note. Let's begin the program. The arrest of the Juarez Reaper, Abdel Latif Sharif Sharif, in the fall of 1995, seemed like the breakthrough that everyone was hoping for in the city's female homicide investigation. A few months later, the bodies of several more women were found on the outskirts of the city in an area known as Lomas de Poleo. Citizens, journalists, and especially the families of Sharif's alleged victims began asking themselves whether authorities truly had the right man behind bars. During her 20-year political career, Irene Blanco held numerous positions in Mexico's state and federal governments, including several terms as a federal congresswoman representing the state of Quintana Roo. But in the fall of 1995, Blanco was working in the town hall with Francisco Villarreal Torres. He was the mayor and I was a PR director. With that daily relationship, well, a friendship was built, one of great trust. When Sharif was arrested, Villarreal was a very smart man and with impressive skills for analysis and synthesis. He said, I don't see. How is it that yesterday there was nothing? They accidentally find him and now he's the killer of women? They're making up stories and stories and stories about him. But this man, he's going to carry all the stories we have and the ones to come on his shoulders. And well, time passed by and Villarreal got sick. And uh, well, he calls me from Paris and says, hey, how are things going? And I say, well, I mean, they get worse every time. And he says, and this man, Sharif, there's no one to defend him? And I say, well, since he doesn't have any money, it's hard for anyone to defend him. They're going to have him for breakfast, he said. And you know what the worst thing is going to be? That nobody is thinking about the dead women. He said, no. No, something has to be done there. And so then one day he was saying that he was very cold. And um, the one who helped him there in the house was, 
Well, a lifelong help, a lad. And he told me, tell Fer to bring me some gloves. I'm very cold. I told Fer and Fer went and brought him his ski gloves. Big ones. Then, when he was, um, I think that's the day he died. He told me. I want you to take care of something, but I want you to really do it. Don't tell me you will and then not do it. So I said, well, first tell me what you want and I'll tell you if I will do it. So he pulled out the gloves from under the covers and said, here, I'm giving you these gloves because you're going to need them. What for? To strike blows on injustice and impunity. You have to look after these women and you have to defend the innocence of this guy. If he's guilty, fine. But let them blame him only for what he's done, not for what they come up with. Remember, there are all those women On that day, Mr. Villarreal died, because this happened around noon, and he died late at night. I was left with so much on my shoulders. But I have to keep this promise, I said. I have to do it. This is episode three of The Red Note, The Invisible Hand. My name is Lydia Cacho. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Publicly, authorities were still insisting that Abdel Latif Sharif Sharif was solely responsible for the Juarez serial murders. But journalist Diana Washington Valdez says that cracks were beginning to emerge in the state's case against the Egyptian. 
Well, there were a lot of problems and the case began, some of the timelines were off that uh, Sharif was seen with a particular victim when that victim was not a victim, but was actually at home with her family. And the case began to fall apart uh, when the authorities uh, started uh, getting uh, asked about specifics. As Washington Valdez writes in her book, The Killing Fields, police claim Sharif had been observed in the company of one victim, Adriana Torres, on the night before she went missing. But Torres's family said that the girl was at home with them the whole night. Sharif was accused of killing a woman named Elizabeth Ontiveros. The charge was dropped when Ontiveros herself walked into a police station to present herself to authorities. Investigators ordered a dental exam after bite marks were found on some of the victims whose deaths were blamed on Sharif. In the case of one victim, activist and politician Vicky Caraveo says, I don't know if I can do it or not, but I'm going to say it. Her breasts were bitten. The body was not too damaged. Just her bitten breast, but the nipple was bitten off. So, when Sharif gets locked up and they start with the expert analysis, this and that, well, the teeth don't match with what they had from the girl's nipples. Until one of his former cellmates says, ah, they'll never match because he's got a dental bridge and he takes it off. What do you mean? He's got a bridge? And they started saying, thanks to the investigations, we realized that it was a bridge and that the bite. <laughs> what investigations? Just a fluke, pure luck. There never was a serious investigation. After exhausting his savings, Sharif was no longer able to afford his legal team. So Irene Blanco stepped in to become his legal representative. After reviewing the autopsy reports of Sharif's alleged victims, Blanco says that it was obvious to her that more than one killer had committed the murders. The serial killer has a signature. And you could tell from that the crimes he committed with his own hand. Back then, there were seven women's cases they were pinning on Sharif. The first two files I see where the situation started there's an extremely strong signature there. The girl's hands were tied with their shoelaces. The body was face down and the shoes were at foot level, placed one after the other, face down, brown skinned, long dark hair, young 16, 17 year old girls. Both bodies had a cut a puncture wound on the buttocks. A letter V. Much later, forensic analysis would show that these clear tattoo-like marks 
had been made with a special knife. This type of mutilation is a common feature of gender-motivated violence. The rest of them, none had a signature to identify. That's when I said, we have to find out who did it. Blanco set to work with Sharif preparing his defense. Generally speaking, we had to talk to each other in terms of truth. Tell me about your life, tell me your story, and tell me how you were arrested, how you are here, and, and how you got to Mexico. He told me about his life in Egypt. In college, he was one of the most brilliant students in his time. He had no way to, no interest in hiding. Because he would tell me, I've been exposed with all this. I have to tell you how things are, the truth. I just want the truth to come out. He was, he was a bright man with a brilliant intellect, a clarity to see scenarios, to see things, an impressive logic. Because of his alcoholic personality, with moments of great angst, much apprehension, I can tell you that most of the time that I knew him, Sharif lived in distress, a deep anguish that you could feel Everything was against him. Besides, he had no friends here. And the friends he had, they reacted like, I don't know you anymore. I have nothing to do with you. He didn't have any money. The clothes he, um, that he wore, they were my son's. But when we got to work, it's like we would be immersed in the job, in what we had to do. And he would spend a lot of time writing, looking at his file. I'd leave it to him like homework. Even if it was just to keep him entertained and to get him involved in his case. Blanco says that the allegations of sexual violence against Sharif in the U.S. didn't dissuade her from taking the Egyptian's case. In The accusations, the U.S. files and, I mean, come on, they weren't about abuse, they were verbal, they were, I think it was the ex-wife, something like that. I mean, I kind of compared maybe harassment to a brutal crime. If you said that that, that was when he was 15 and... He was a harasser or something, and this kept growing and growing. But, but no, it, it was the ex-partner, a quarrel. You could say, this is where it started, and this is where it ended. The fact that I was seeing that he wasn't guilty, and that the deaths kept rising, it was stronger for me than saying, hey, excuse me, but I don't deal with harassers. It didn't cross my mind. I'm telling you in all honesty. But the decision to take over Sharif's defense 
also came with a warning. Washington Valdez writes that shortly after she agreed to represent the Egyptian, Chihuahua's governor, Francisco Barrio, stopped by Blanco's office to offer her some advice. There is a powerful mafia here, the governor told her, that one should not interfere with. I saw something back then, and I was confirming it along the way. And now I tell you the same thing I thought. Here's how you get into a very dangerous alley. I felt that we were treading on very, very dangerous ground. Since the beginning of the femicides in 1993, Dozens of women's bodies had been found on the outskirts of Juarez. During the early 90s, Vicky Caraveo began organizing search parties to look for the remains of these missing young women in the desert. I said, since the authorities are not doing anything, how about we meet at 5 a.m.? We already knew that girls, when they were killed, were buried, but very superficially, so that with the wind or a little bit of sand movement, a part of her body would be exposed so she would be found. We went into the desert like 30, 35 people, left the truck, everybody grabbed a bottle of water, and we divided into two groups. A separate group over here and a group here. My group, we go up and we see a small house down there. Just a house. It wasn't even a 12 by 12. With uh, two windows in the front and a back door. And then uh, a fence. I open the door and we walk in and there's like uh, little pools of blood about three of them, and we see a piece of wood leaning against the wall. Look, the top part was Sierra de Juarez. That's the mountain that overlooks the city, famous for its The Bible is the True sign on its face. There were bodies in different positions, with slanted eyes, short hair, bangs, the mouth, a description, five girls in the front, five in the back completely naked. Their bodies were marked, their pubic area, everything. Completely naked, but very well marked. And in each one, there was a slightly different scenario. So there were Nazi signs, wolves howling, stones, and yucas. And there were 10 of them. At that time, we had 10 girls missing. And the strangest thing is that we saw in the back of the room, there were stockings tied up all over the barbed wire. So a few panties, some bras, but the most impressive thing was a hairball about this size. Place like this. Of course, we didn't want to take any of that because, well, that's evidence. 
<laughs> we get to the deputy's prosecutor's office. The investigating officers come. He comes out. The press is there. And I tell a reporter who was a friend of mine, would you take a picture of the wood? Up close, at least on one side. Yes, of course, madam. Caraveo handed the wood board over to the deputy prosecutor, who promised to have it analyzed. The next day, it took them three days to get together to prepare the statement about them going to the house that Mrs. Vicky Caraveo had reported it and that it was pigeon blood. And since it was pigeon, they demolished everything. They didn't leave a single brick. When she returned to the deputy prosecutor's office to check on the progress of the analysis, the wooden board was nowhere to be found. Officials denied ever having it in their possession. Where was it? No one knows. No one will. Thank God I have the picture. In the mid-90s, stories about the serial murders in Juarez were beginning to trickle into the U.S. At the time, Molly Molloy was a research librarian at New Mexico State University. Some reporters in the U.S. started noticing, mainly people close to the border, about the fact that there had been a lot of young women who were murdered in, in Juarez. One of the first stories that really got national attention was the one that Charles Bowden did in 1996 in Harper's. He just noticed these crime stories or these little tiny articles in the newspaper um, where a family would post a photograph and say, our daughter is missing, something like that. You know, he noticed it and he thought, this is terrible. Someone should be reporting on this. And so he started going to Juarez. But his main focus at the time was not to say, look, this is, you know, people, bad people, serial killers hunting women, but rather that the economic conditions in the city produced a place that was very dangerous for a lot of people and young women were some of the most vulnerable people, and many of them ended up being killed. He wanted to point out the actual human cost of it, and one aspect of that human cost. The, the emphasis on the young women was kind of accidental. Although, in his mind, I, I, I don't think it was really accidental. I think that he saw it as a hook, as a way to get attention from the U.S., He was actually kind of shocked, surprised, I guess, that it ended up being the main story about Juarez for the next 25 years. At some point in the late 90s, early 2000s, the stories got more and more attention outside of Juarez. Um, there became a lot of interest in uh, the more sensational aspects of some of the murders, People started looking at Juarez as, I mean, I'm quoting headlines, the city that kills women. 
In the late 90s, Juarez native Lorena Figueroa was an intern at the San Antonio Express News. She says that the growing number of U.S. stories about the female homicides in Juarez began to warp how the city was perceived outside the border region. One of the reporters there told me, are you from Juarez? I'm like, yeah, what's the deal? They were like, oh my God. I mean, how do you survive there? I'm like, well, what do you mean? I, I didn't understand the, even for me, the how feminized or how Juarez was labeled as the murder, the feminized capital of the world. I don't know, just like some, it was labeled as this place where women could not walk in the streets because they were going to get either raped, uh, kidnapped, or killed. Juarez is, it's, uh, it's a complex city. It's a complex city with a lot of problems, but that was the perspective of Juarez in the United States. This somber legend of Ciudad Juarez is not just the murders of women, but also the response of the authorities to the murders to basically just shelve the cases by fabricating coverage using torture. Forensic examiner Oscar Maynes. In Mexico, there are those who say that we never had an investigating police. It was just an oppressive instrument of the state to control dissension critics. And when criminal events happen that could affect the tranquility of the community, they would essentially go out, grab the first person they see, and torture him. There hasn't been any real interest in finding the perpetrators of the homicides. In April 96, police were investigating the rape and murder of a teenage maquiladora worker. One of the men they interviewed during the investigation was named Hector Olivares Villalva. As Teresa Rodriguez recounts in her book, Daughters of Juarez, Olivares Villalva admitted to authorities that he had carried out the girl's murder with the help of several accomplices. Based on this confession, and after learning that some of the victims had been seen in the city's red light district, police in Juarez raided several clubs in the area. The raids resulted in the arrest of more than 300 people, including nine men who officials said, along with Olivares Villalva, were part of a gang called Los Rebeldes. Police said that not only had the 10 gang members confessed to several femicides, they admitted they had been hired to commit them by Abdel Latif Sharif Sharif. Diana Washington Valdez. There had to be someone on the inside of the law enforcement that had a very good imagination and was able to sit down and write scenarios. Maybe somebody, <laughs> like somebody doing a movie. Uh, really, literally, because uh, you had to come up with a narrative and make all the pieces fit the narrative or else write the narrative to fit the pieces that were gathered. 
And this is what was happening. You could tell there was like this invisible hand behind the scenes. Okay, this is the transcript. This is what we're going to do. Police alleged that Sharif, the intellectual author of the murders, had met with Los Rebeldes several times while behind bars. In exchange for killing two women per month, he would pay the gang 1,000 pesos, about $50 per victim. When they performed the murders, Los Rebeldes had to imitate Sharif's signature to make it appear he was being falsely accused. They had to provide the Egyptian with a pair of each victim's panties in order to receive their money. So the authorities invented this gang called Los Rebeldes. There was not a gang called Los Rebeldes. They came up with a gang and they, and they needed more people, right, to fill the gang membership. Uh, who were going to be presented as the accomplices of Sharif, as Sharif was paying them off, uh, and that he wanted the underwear of the women to prove that uh, they had done the work. Uh, all nonsensical, but nevertheless, this is what they developed. Los Rebeldes were subsequently indicted on seven counts of murder. Governor Francisco Barrio heralded the raid that led to the gang's arrest as the most expensive and professional investigation in Chihuahua history. Attorney General Arturo Chavez Chavez bragged about the FBI-style search that had brought Los Rebeldes to justice. Irene Blanco. Yes, that from prison, he was sending them and telling them that what the victims should be like and what to do to them. I mean, just crazy. Like something from a lousy crime novel scene. Lousy. It was silly. I don't know. When you start a book and see some things and just, you just stop reading. Then, Los Rebeldes called their own press conference. The ten men said they had been tortured by police into making their own confessions. They said they had nothing to do with Sharif or the serial murders. In fact, Los Rebeldes didn't even exist. They said the name had been invented by police. Investigators were having trouble getting charges against the alleged gang members to stick. There was no evidence any of the 10 men had received payments from Sharif. There was no sign in the prison logs that they had ever met with the Egyptian. Even if there had been a meeting, Sharif's command of the Spanish language was shaky at best. And Los Rebeldes spoke little English. How were they supposed to have hatched their conspiracy? Today, Veronica Corchado is the Juarez director of In Mujeres. In the 90s, when she was working at a maquiladora in the city, Ms. Corchado says that opinions were divided 
as to whether Sharif and Los Rebeldes were behind the serial murders. Everything was polarized. There were mothers who did think so. There were also organizations that were, that sided with those mothers and thought so too. There were organizations that definitely claimed they were scapegoats and they could have been guilty easily. They could have been innocent easily. I think that, that today we don't really know. Irene Blanco. It was very difficult to talk to the victims' mothers because they were already crossing over. They were already convinced that Sharif was the culprit. I was the monster defending Sharif. Years later, when Blanco was a federal congresswoman. I came to meet with a, a group of mothers. And I came here to Juarez and brought another representative from Chihuahua with me. And we were sitting there listening to them. And I, I suddenly see a lady telling me, Hey, and you, Sharif's girlfriend, did he tell you how he killed my daughter? I didn't answer her. I mean, what would you say? I wasn't going to start a fight, an argument, a disagreement with her. But it feels so unpleasant. In this complex scenario of murder, torture and impunity, the mothers of the victims help journalists from all over Mexico interweave the truth behind the authorities' conflicting statements. They became the voices of reason, the ones forcing reporters like me to ask all the right questions. In 1997, four years of simmering frustration over Sharif, Los Rebeldes, and the mismanagement of the female murders investigations were ready to boil over in Juarez. If there was one thing that united everyone in Juarez at the time, it was the complete distrust of what they were being told by authorities. With state elections looming next year, the pressure was on Governor Francisco Barrio to deliver results before his conservative punt party, which had controlled the state since 1992, paid the price at the polls. That fall, Attorney General Arturo Chavez Chavez announced that Chihuahua's authorities would launch a special task force for the investigation of crimes against women, which would be dedicated to stopping the serial murders in Juarez. The task force was to be led by a special prosecutor who would be personally chosen by the Attorney General. Activists and victims' families were hopeful that the creation of the special task force would be a turning point in ending the femicides in Juarez. During this time, 
many victims' mothers also began working alongside survivors of rape and other crimes against women, women's organizations, and journalists. Many quit working to become full-time justice seekers. To counter the effects of this movement, government officials began a divide-and-conquer campaign that continued for years. Officials called mothers or fathers, one by one, offering them a small house or mortgage payments. Some were sunk in poverty. It was a difficult offer to turn down. When I and other reporters asked about these payments, the district attorney said they were a sort of damage reparation for families who had lost their daughters. José Luis Castillo's daughter, Esmeralda, disappeared in 2009. Mr. Castillo says that the Chihuahua state government offered him 180,000 pesos, about $9,000 in reparations for the loss of his daughter if he would drop the investigation into her disappearance. Of course, that fell on me like a bucket of cold water. I told them we would not take it. The DA of that time told me, how much do you want? I said, well, I want what your daughter's worth. And he said, my daughter is priceless. And I said, well, mine's priceless too. The payments also helped the government drive a wedge between the families who accepted reparations and those who continued to defy government officials. Journalist Rocío Gallegos. It's a way to co-op them and it's a way to divide them. They remain silent about many things. And also, they argue with each other. And that's like a freebie for the government, that they can be divided even without the government doing anything. The revictimization of these families kept growing at the same speed as the police's inability to find the serial killers. They knew that there was something more powerful behind this, and they wouldn't stop until they could discover what it was. Irene Blanco. If there was a serious crime and there's that terrible crime of femicide, there's the other crime, that of abusing the victim's mothers. The abuse, the entrapment, the empty promises. To offer things to them according to their condition, because it's even demeaning, offensive. Don't sidetrack me. Give me justice, and then you can give me everything you want. But first, give me justice. I can't give you justice, so I'll give you mirrors to keep you busy.
The Red Note is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was hosted by Lydia Gacho and written and directed by Craig Whitney. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Lydia Gacho. Lead producer it's me, Estefania Bonilla-Hernandez, and producers are Laura Caulfield, Will Wallace, and Craig Whitney. Research and interviews conducted by Alicia Fernandez. Sound recording by Nicolás Aguilar-Limenez and designed by Javier Umpierrez. LA recording engineer is Tom Corkin. Dubbing directed by Rebecca Gomez and performed by Isabel Ireland, Rona Fletcher, Arturo Mercado Jr., and Genaro Vázquez. Music composed by Michael Ramos. Abraham Buendía recording the making of and stills. Our production fixer was René Nava. Production vans were provided by our drivers Arturo and Ricardo Baeza in Ciudad Juárez and in Mexico City by Hugo Ramos. The production accounting supervised by Viridiana Morales and performed by Miguel Torres at Global Entertainment Firm. Insurance provided by Jasmine Alba and Ricardo Carrillo at LCI Seguros. Lorena Olivares is assistant to the director. Legal services provided by Laura Caulfield in the U.S. and in Mexico by Laura Marvan at Marvan Pitol Abogados. The production was coordinated by Minerva Bolaños and supervised by Héctor Subieta. The producers wish to thank Adam Bruso, Dr. Edgardo Buscaglia, Daniel Espinosa Ochoa, Mike Hisi, Adriana Montalvo, Tony Montanieri, and Maria Rosa Ochoa for their gracious help with this podcast. We would especially like to thank Luis Chaparro and Ikae Chituda at the Chihuahua Film Commission and the people of Ciudad Juarez for their hospitality and support during the production. If you enjoyed the Red Note, please rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Thanks again for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.